0: Working our way through the book of Revelation. We're we're getting close. Revelation chapter 20. Um, both morning and evening series are in the final stages. You'll see some posters about some of the things that we'll be doing uh, later on in the year. Let me just mention a couple of books. These are, as far as I know, not in our resource room. I grabbed these off my shelf. Two minutes ago. Um, But you could get them online or or whatever. Let me just explain them. Last week, this is part two of Millennium Resurrection and Judgment. And we started on it last week. Did two points last week and spent most of our time uh, looking at the millennial options. The millennium is mentioned, well, about five times in Revelation chapter 20. And so I was trying to quickly go, grow through um, the three basic positions on the millennium, which are amillennialism, postmillennialism, and premillennialism. The, the idea being in, in uh, postmillennialism, the idea is there's this thousand-year reign, Christ on earth, after the second coming. He's here. Ruling and reigning on the earth, and the text has this figure of a thousand years. I said, I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't press that. Like, if it's not a thousand years, I'll be upset. I know that numbers are used in different ways throughout the Book of Revelation, but that's where millennium comes from. All millennialism believes that there won't be any literal reign of Christ on the earth. It's not technically true to say that all millennialists don't believe in the millennium. It's that they don't believe in a physical reign of Christ on earth. They would believe that the millennium, that language in Revelation 20, is a picture of the rule and reign of Christ in the hearts of believers. Or they would believe that those who have died and gone to be with the Lord, my dad, your relatives... They are ruling and reigning with Christ right now and that that's the millennium. So all millennialists believe there's another explanation other than Jesus being physically present here on earth. Post-millennialists believe, as, this, as post would imply, that um, Jesus comes not before the millennium to rule and reign on the earth a thousand years. He comes at the close post, after the millennium, that the church the body of Christ brings about uh, this idyllic state on earth where Christ rules and reigns through his church. We will change the education system, the legal system, the political system. Usually in post-millennialism you have some kind of a rising of uh, latter-day prophets and apostles and uh the power of Christ's kingdom will be manifested supernaturally in the church in such a way that the world will be transformed and then Jesus will come. I find that the hardest, that one, the hardest position to, to hold, personally. pre believe you have the second coming, Jesus comes back. And he is here, ruling and reigning on the earth for a thousand years, whatever the time span is. So he comes pre, before. He establishes the millennium and rules and reigns on earth. On Earth. I say all of that because uh, a book that I found helpful, I don't agree with every word of it, so if you get this book and you read something questionable, you don't have to question my orthodoxy. I don't agree with everything in the book, but I think overall, if you want a book that explains what I just went over, sorting out evangelical options, The Millennial Maze, it's by Stan Grantz. he just... Died a few years back. G-R-E-N-Z. Stan Grenz. G-R-E-N-Z. It's a pretty fair book in terms of saying, here's what this group believes, here's what that group believes, here's what that group believes, and he'll tell you which one he thinks is the most realistic and the most scriptural. That's a useful book. Again, it's not in our resource room. I just, I just uh, grabbed that off my own shelf. Another one that is useful in terms of the rapture, thinking about the rapture, um, is this book called First the Antichrist. It's by Bob Gundry, G-U-N-D-R-Y, Bob Gundry. The thesis of the book is is why the pre-trib rapture, as it's been so touted with Hal Lindsey and a lot of films and movies... It is very hard to line that up with a lot of scripture passages and this book would be as good as any that I know of in terms of sorting that out and explaining it in a scriptural way. So that's called First the Antichrist by Bob Gundry. The other one is The Millennial Maze by Stanley Grenz. And they don't have them in the resource room. They get mad at me when I recommend books and everybody goes in there and then I get in trouble. You just don't want that. All right. All right. Millennium, Resurrection, and Judgment, Part 2. Tonight's presentation is in 3D. Revelation 20, I'm going to read 15 verses. John continues with these revelations that he sees on the island of Patmos. He's there for exile, punishment for his testimony to Jesus Christ. He writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. And he seized the dragon, this angel did, that ancient serpent who is the devil, Revelation 12, and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is where we get the term millennium. And threw him into the pit, shut it, sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. ...until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What a strange sentence. I'm going to talk about that. And then I saw thrones... ...and seated on them were those... ...to whom the authority to judge was committed... ...and I also saw the souls of those... ...who had been beheaded... ...for the testimony of Jesus... ...and for the word of God... ...and who had not worshipped the beast... ...nor its image... ...and had not received its mark... ...on their foreheads and hands... So this is where all millennialists get the idea that that those who have gone to be with Jesus, they're in the millennium now ruling and reigning with Christ because John sees these thrones and he sees the souls of those who had been beheaded. So these people are dead. Then it says, uh, middle of verse 4, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So there's a group at the beginning and a group at the end. The hardest part, I said last week, the hardest part for um, all millennialists is, and and all millennialism is, if I wasn't a, a 75% committed premillennialist, all millennialism would be the next view that I would be inclined to. I'll tell you why in a minute. I would never be a postmillennialist. The problem, though, for all millennialists is that These two resurrections, one at the beginning of the millennium, one at the end. So they came to life, reigned with Christ a thousand years, last part of verse 4. The rest of the dead, verse 5, did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. So the words for coming to life and resurrection are only used in the scripture and even in uh, ancient documents, period. The words are only used to describe physical resurrection. And the amillennialist has to do something different. He makes it conversion. So that's the problem I think amillennialists have, though I don't fight about it. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first resurrection, it says, is at the beginning of the millennium. And then there's another resurrection at the close of the millennium. Verse 7. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. This is not the lake of fire. It's called his prison. His prison. And he will come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. He sees this vision. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. This is different now. Thrown into the lake of fire. This is not the bottomless pit where he was sealed thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Tormented. Not in a place of torment forever and ever but actually tormented forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it and from his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book. So you have books, and then you have another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. And then this strange verse, death and, then death and Hades. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You see that verse 15? Is that in your notes? Okay, read it out loud with me, 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I have two more points. I took a lot of time getting into it tonight. Let me just move ahead. Point number three, because we did one and two last week. Satan freed and then doomed. You just have to come to terms with this, because it's such a strange part of the text, You see in verse 7 there, And the thousand years were ended, and Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea. And they will march up over the broad plain of the earth, and surround the camp of the saints. The camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So this isn't a battle that actually ever gets fought. 10. And the devil who had deceived them, because he's, he's, he's let out, he deceives the nations, makes all sorts of trouble, and then he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I have two thoughts. I think you have to eventually ask the question, maybe it's the most perplexing issue uh, for premillennialists, like, like, like myself, who take up reasonably literal, I don't know if a thousand years needs to be pressed like date to date, but a reasonably literal interpretation of the millennium. This is the hardest part for us to deal with. It's this release of Satan after the completion of the thousand years. And, and yet you stop and you just say, what? so what, what's the deal here? What possible purpose could that serve? Why must, why must Christ come and reign temporally, visibly, on this earth only, only to release Satan to deceive the nations again? And the simplest answer is John doesn't give us a clue he's not shown in any vision he doesn't guess it is just blank doesn't give us very many whys in his visions but but the question just kind of nudges its way up to the surface over and over again and so let me at least put forward a theory that I think is is helpful I don't remember where I read it I'm sure I didn't come up with it myself because I'm not bright enough but I think I think in in the sovereignty and in the wisdom and in the justice of God Satan's release after Christ has personally reigned for a thousand years right here on earth it helps to do two things it helps to demonstrate the real nature and root of human wickedness and it helps to magnify God's Justice. Take a look around you. Whenever anything really wicked happens, the the news media, wherever you get your news, and there's right, left, and all sorts of sources. Whenever something really wicked happens, uh, the media finds. We have to find some way of explaining why these things happen. And, and so we, we, look for, we look for heredity. Is there a history of mental illness? Is there, is there a history of depression? Is there, or we, we look to economics. There's crime. Well, there's a lot of poverty in certain areas and sectors or, or uh, psychological factors. And so we look for these reasons as to why things go wrong the way they go wrong. And what brings these kinds of wicked deeds to the, to the surface. But there has to be an explanation. And so here's God wrapping up human history as we know it. And, and, and before the final judgment. See, the final judgment on all sin. It'll be done in such a way it'll be done in such a way that um, we won't be able to object to it. And so what God does before final judgment, Jesus comes, rules and reigns on the earth with wh- however that's done, I have no idea. saints, those designated there's thrones um, which speak to me just of some kind of structure, some kind of authority, with Christ ruling and reigning on the earth, creating in the millennium, um, with Satan bound not to deceive the nations, his influence gone. So what you have is this idyllic environment once again. All right? And so one can stand back and say, well, see, there you go. It's the environment. If, If people are educated enough, if the pain and suffering of poverty and unemployment and a lack of education, if you, if you do away with these, with these uh, injustices and, and create an ideal environment, people just flourish like flowers in the sun. And that, that kind of thinking has to be dismantled before God judges sin. Because God's explanation for sin is different from just a bad environment. So who's right? How will we observe the justice of God? And so what he does, you have Satan, and it's not accidental. It says clearly he's released. He doesn't get out on his own. He's released, and instantly there's something in that perfect, a thousand years perfect environment there is still something in the human heart that is instantly drawn to Satan and what he does. Did you track with me? And so when God finally judges, Paul says, every mouth will be stopped. Because all of the things we used to use to rationalize and explain human wickedness will have been exposed through the visible millennial reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. We will know come from the environment we will know it's not a lack of education we will know it's not psychological factors we will know there's something in the human heart it's deceitful it can be suppressed but only the blood of Jesus can bring redemption and spiritual renewal so that folks is uh, that's my explanation Again, the text doesn't say that. But what God said all along will be made manifest. That sin has its root in the human heart. And there is no one to blame but the wicked, fallen human self. That's the first thing I want to point out. Secondly, I want you to notice the nature of the punishment in the lake of fire. You'll notice that... Satan, that dragon, is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are. Um, The significant thing about that is I I don't know of a text that more clearly refutes the the theory of what's come to be called conditional immortality. Do you know what that phrase means? Conditional immortality means, it's, it's another name for annihilationism. So, so the idea behind it is, the righteous, when they die, their spirits go to be with Jesus. And then at the resurrection, their bodies are raised and they go into the presence of the Lord eternally entering into his presence and new creation heaven and earth so after judgment the wicked those unbelievers those outside of Christ they are thrown into the lake of fire and what happens is well they just cease to exist there's there's uh, not a conscious suffering forever and ever and ever they're just snuffed out you take a piece of wood you throw it in the fire it just gets burnt up so That's called conditional immortality. The condition is faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ get immortality, eternal life. Those who don't have faith in Christ don't get immortality in any form. They are simply incinerated, annihilated, and gone. The interesting thing about this text, it's one of the few places where you see it. Satan is bound and he's thrown into the lake of fire. This is at the close of the millennium however long you make it, let's say a thousand years. The beast and the false prophet have been there a thousand years. And when Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, they're still there. And the significant thing about that, I think, is the beast and the false prophet, Antichrist and the false prophet, these are, by any measurement... These are not eternal beings. These are temporal, created beings. They have that in common with we. And yet they aren't consumed. And the text specifically says they're tormented forever and and ever. Now, that raises another question. It's not in your notes. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. It's 6.30, should I? Here's a question that you're going to be asked. And it's an intelligent question and it deserves an answer. Um, I get asked this quite a bit. Usually though with seminary students and that type of thing. And they'll say something like this. How is it? You talk about the justice of God. How is it fair for God? Whatever sin I commit. I, I rob a bank. I... Commit adultery, I, uh, whatever, whatever sin I commit, however horrific, maybe something really gross, okay, a murder. Whatever sin I commit is committed in a limited, finite period of time, correct? Because I'm, I'm only here for so long. And so one morning in July, I shoot Chris Mix his wife gets the insurance everybody's happy (laughs) and it's done in a moment it's done in a moment so here's the question Pastor Don how is it fair for sin committed in a finite period of time how is it fair of God to punish a sin committed in a finite period of time and the punishment lasts infinitely does that sound fair so, so what, would be, what would be the logic behind God punishing something eternally that was done in a short space of time? And that's a hard question. Here's my, here's my attempt at an answer. I, I shared this with uh, my Christian ed class. It's like asking the question, why is the universe so big? Let's assume just for a minute... ...we have no evidence otherwise yet... ...let's assume that... ...human life as God created it... ...God created this world... ...this earth... ...pick your time... ...young earth, old earth... ...whatever you are... ...but he created this earth... ...and... ...people like us. But even in our solar system... ...this earth... ...you see all these specks... ...can you see all the specks... ...on this carpet from here? Okay, so let's just say... ...our solar system... Would be like this platform. I'll show you earth. That square there. Okay. Right there. That square. Is this earth. And that's our solar system. That's one solar system. There are billions of them. You, you couldn't. Our Our earth. Is invisible compared to the vastness of the universe, so what is all of that space for? No, is that not a, a, a cosmic waste? What is all that for? And here's the answer. The answer is when the Bible it gives us a better picture than just this earth when the Bible says that he, he measures his creation with the span of his hand. And when the Bible talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, and as we find out more and more and more about how vast the heavens are, you can't think about it after a while. Your mind isn't big enough, infinite, just it doesn't fit in your head. So the vastness of the universe in comparison to the tininess of the earth the vastness of the universe is there to proclaim the greatness of God. The immensity of God. And the, and the length of eternal punishment exists in exactly the same way to show us the justice of God and the holiness of God. That, that however seriously we think of sin, our concept of it is inadequate in God's eyes. It's God's justice, God's justice is revealed in eternal punishment in the same way that his vastness is revealed in the immensity of the universe. It's the same thing. That that everything we conceive about God's size, God's power, and God's holiness, everything we can possibly conceive, the best of us, is tragically short. Not even close to the reality. So the beast and the false prophet are there. Conditional immortality, I believe, will not stand up to Scripture. By the way... Oh, man. Don't look at the clock. Just don't even look at it. Jesus is very specific. Jesus is the one who said... Okay, remember this passage. The devil's taken, thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? The beast and the false prophet. Jesus talked about people now being thrown into the place... Quote prepared for the devil and his angels. So, so that it won't be a different place. It'll be the same place, the same nature of punishment. So in my mind, uh, conditional immortality, annihilationism is, is a, a human wish, but it doesn't stand up to the revelation of Scripture. All right, the last point. close to the last point the great white throne judgment of God 11 of chapter 20 and I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it I love this and from his presence earth and sky fled away no place was found for them I take that to mean um, it's going to talk about the sea, giving up the dead, all the dead. There's, there's nowhere to hide. Earth and sky fled away. E- everything laid bare. Everything exposed. 12, I saw the dead, small and great. By this world's measurement, it's talking about kings, leaders, rulers, emperors, presidents, prime ministers, ordinary schlunks like the rest of us. All of us. So what you see is there's this equality before the throne. All the distinctions that mattered and that we clamored for, positions of power, prestige, influence, all gone now. All gone. Standing before the throne, books were opened. Another book was opened, the book of life. The dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name, now it's people, if anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I want to go through three things fairly quickly. This final judgment will include the complete renovation of the material order of things the physical realm so so you have earth and sky fled away and no more place was found for them it's it's like the text we've been studying this isn't in your notes but sunday morning in hebrews a few weeks ago that phrase from hebrews 12:27 yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken that is the things that have been made this this shaking it ties in with what we've already seen when we came to the last seal. Remember I said the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, they all take you right up to the end. When you came to that last seal, Revelation 6, 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, the stars of the sky fell to the earth The fig tree, as a fig tree sheds its Winter fruit, when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. And so we've seen this end time judgment before, at least twice in the book of Revelation. At the end of the seals, at the end of the trumpets, and now at the end of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Secondly, notice the mention of these two different names for the books. And I think it's important, and it's confusing. It's confusing. All are judged, it says, for the record of their deeds. But no one is going to be saved by their good works. So people will stand, especially at the close of millennium, with no excuse for their deeds. But it's this opening of this other book, the book of life. That's where we find any hope for salvation and redemption and eternal life. And John again... He reaffirms... reaffirms, There's no other hope for salvation... Than having one's name in the book of life. If anyone's name... 15... Was not found written in the book of life... He was thrown into the lake of fire. Let me just say this... These are different books... But they aren't contradictory. In other words... We are not saved by works. We are saved by... Faith. Grace given in a response to faith... Not of works. And so... The book of life. But then you have everybody being judged by their works. And what, I, what people frequently do is they make this like two judgments. So you have those whose names are in the book of life and they just get a pass. And then everybody else, the wicked, they're all judged by their deeds. And I, I don't think that stands up. I think, I think, people whose names are in the book of life who received grace, will manifest faith in Jesus Christ in obedience. In other words, we'll be rewarded for our good deeds recorded in the other books. So it's not just two separate camps. There are people whose names are recorded in the book of life, and that will manifest itself in being rewarded for good deeds. There are people whose names are not in the book of life, and even the good deeds they do won't get them eternal life. It's important to see that difference, that distinction. Lastly, final point. This final manifestation of Christ's victory in the destruction of death and Hades themselves. You see it in 13 and 14? And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. They were judged each of them according to what they had done. Then, here's the phrase, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. What's that about? I think there's great theology here. The scriptures cre- clearly affirm Christ's victory over death and the grave on the cross. If you, if you look at 2 Timothy 1.10, Paul writes, and he says, And which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. Talking about his first coming. His death on the cross. Who abolished death. He abolished it. And brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And right away, you got to think, yeah, but people, people still die. Paul, what do you mean he abolished Death. People die every day, 60,000 people a year, a day rather. God takes out of this earth every day, 60,000 people. Google it. The grave claims every one of us. But John sees this vision, and it's a beautiful part of a dark vision. The, The full fruit of the victory of Christ purchased for us in his own death on Calvary. We don't see this yet. Death is going to be destroyed. Death itself is going to die. That's the second death. Hebrews 2.8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, the Father, putting everything in subjection to the Son, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's not done. It's not finished I don't know what it's going to look like John sees these visions and I can't imagine what he saw I, I, I think it's going to be a delightful day and I, I, I think about I think about the shout of applause you might be the quietest worshipper in the world you will shout when, when somehow our Lord takes a hold of death Just takes it by the throat. Have you lost loved ones? And he's going to just throw it into the lake of fire, and death will be done. And we will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever and ever. It's a perplexing passage, but it's got a really good finish. Let's pray.